Good morning. My name is Dan Hardy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it is my joy and privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, and uh, yeah, I come up here with just great confidence in uh, God's Word and His Spirit, and my prayers that He would do a work uh, in each of our hearts this morning uh, through His Word. I've titled this three-week sermon series that concludes on Resurrection Sunday, New Life Rising. And I stole the title from a little devotional that came from uh, Christianity Today because it, it really resonated with me, that there is new life rising um, um, in the believer of Jesus Christ. And um, as God often does, and he has a sense of humor, um, a passage that's been important to me over the last maybe four or five years is in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul reminds us that, that uh, we live in a world that is uh, broken, it's decaying. And, and Paul says that even though the outer man is decaying, the outer human is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. And there's this picture where as we get older, our health declines, but there's this beautiful contrast that we are looking more and more like Jesus. So we have an increasing hope, not in our bodies here, but in our resurrection. And um, yesterday morning, God in his uh, uh, providence and uh, kindness, really, uh, he determined that it would be best for me to tear my bicep. And so, um, so and it's just, um, I've been fighting for 24 hours with just, idolatry and being reminded of the truth that, that I'm decaying <laughs> and, um, and that my hope is in the resurrection. Uh, my hope is in the resurrection. And so I'm grateful for that. Um, let me pray and then we're going to jump into this today. God, we thank you that, uh, for that, that truth that new life is rising, that you are the author of all life that you spoke it into existence, both original physical life and spiritual life. And God, I thank you that, that we can rest and rejoice and celebrate in the truths that we're going to be talking about here today. And I thank you that, uh, that you are a God of new life, that I thank you that, uh, that death is the gateway to life. And God, I thank you that you placed eternity uh, in all of our hearts. We love you and we pray, God, that you'd be honored and glorified and that we would be edified by your word this morning. And God's people said, the eternal and triune God is not a God of death. He's a God of life. He's a creator and giver of all life. And as a result, new life has been rising from the very beginning. It started when he spoke the heavens and the earth into existence and when he created Adam out of dust and Eve out of the rib of man. In Romans 4.17, the apostle Paul describes God as the author of life. He says this, he says, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. Jesus is the divine originator of all life, physical and spiritual. 
We were created in the image of the triune God to enjoy him, to experience an intimate relationship with him, and to glorify him forever. But you know the story. The first human beings, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, and as a result, sin entered the world, and all of humanity was banished from God's place in God's presence. Scripture tells us that every human being is dead spiritually and will die physically. We need a resurrection. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope in this life or hope for life after death. So for the next three weeks, we're going to focus on the resurrection. Typically, we, we build up to Resurrection Sunday, but we thought it might be good to really um, camp out and deep dive into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So over the next three weeks, we're going to focus on Jesus' resurrection and its implications for us who are in Christ Jesus. Today, we're going to look at our spiritual resurrection, our position. Next Sunday, we're going to look at our daily resurrection, our pattern. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to take a look at our bodily resurrection, our place. So our position, our pattern, and our place over the next three weeks. And I, I pray that as we look to the author of life, that we will gain confidence in Jesus' finished work, especially, or, and, and experience a sure resurrection hope, and increasing joy as we grow in our understanding of our position in Christ that was secured by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I'm a sucker for books about underdog stories and movies. I could watch them and read them all day long. Stories where the geeky guy finally gets the beautiful girl. Or the kid who grows up in poverty and makes it big. I'm drawn to stories of justice where slaves are freed and those falsely accused are set free and declared innocent. Stories of those who have suffered and have been vindicated. Stories of people who were dead in their circumstances, their upbringing, their physical inabilities, their physical imperfections, and then experience a life that they never could have imagined. This is probably why the life of Johnny Erickson Tata resonates with me, and she's one of my favorite human beings. She suffered so much, yet there's so much redemption and resurrection in her life. In a sense, all of these stories are resurrection stories. They're stories of people who were dead in their impossible circumstances, yet experienced a resurrection of sorts. People who've experienced loss and various trials, you know many of them. Some of you um, are those people. But then have been somehow vindicated. The people that have experienced great sorrow and trials but have been vindicated in this life seem to exude more joy and wonder and appreciation as a result of their resurrection from their circumstances in ways that those of us who have had little or no loss can, can't appreciate. Take a cancer survivor. If you've known somebody that has survived cancer, they appreciate the small things in life, the ways that some of us can't. Maybe you know an adult who was adopted when they were a child. 
They understand the love of a physical mother and father and the love of their heavenly father in ways that many of us can't. Moms who have had miscarriages, who now have children that they can raise and love and hug, appreciate the process of parenting in ways that some of us maybe never could. I've met people that have been freed from jail and they experience the everyday walking out the door, seeing the sun and taking a breath in ways that many of us can't. People have been freed from drugs and alcohol, have a joy and a wonder and an appreciation that many of us don't. So today, we're gonna, we're gonna spend time looking at our condition without Jesus' death and resurrection. We're gonna take a close, uh, up, up close and personal look at our spiritual deadness in order to, to understand in greater ways and to appreciate the fullness of God's love and mercy to us in Christ. We're gonna look closely at the bad news in order to fully appreciate the good news. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3.11 informs us that God has put eternity into the hearts of all humanity. Another way of saying this is that God has put resurrection into the hearts of every human being. You see, we're hardwired to want something greater than what we have here in this temporal, um, physical, material earth. Something that is greater, something, this something greater is a life in and with our creator. And death is the gateway to experiencing and living the resurrected life. So I've got a little outline of sorts today. It's really three points. Spiritually dead, new life rising, and spiritually alive. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, the surrounding area of Ephesus. Perhaps he wrote it to remind believers of their immeasurable blessings in Christ Jesus and to encourage them to be thankful for those blessings, blessings and to live in a manner worthy of them. Today, this might frustrate some of you. It frustrates me at times. Um, but we're going to focus on the indicatives of this passage. What God has done for us. Who we were before Christ and who we are now in Christ. If you're looking for a to-do list at the end of this sermon, you're going to be disappointed. If, um, I would encourage you to soak in these truths today and in the coming weeks, and let them guide you to a greater level of awe, thanksgiving, and worship. Additionally, we're not going to be walking through this passage verse by verse. Yes, we do topical sermons here from time to time. Our preference, our main diet here is preaching through books verse by verse. Uh, but we thought it would be good to step out and really just deep dive into um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In two times in today's passage, in chapter two, verses one through nine, two times Paul says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. 
verse 1, and again in verse 4. And if we don't understand that we were spiritually dead, we won't understand the fullness of God's mercy and love for us, and we will miss the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us. Verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins that you once walked. Verse 4, we were dead in our trespasses. Christian, you were dead in your sins, and you needed a resurrection from the dead to bring new life. Paul writes to not just you, but to we or us, because what he has written was true of himself as well. Like you and me and every human being, Paul was dead in his trespasses and sins, and he needed a resurrection. So the question, the million-dollar question that you should be asking when you're sitting there is, well, what does it mean to be dead in our sins and trespasses? In, the, in its simplest terms, it describes a spiritual death lifelessness, no breath, no heartbeat, unresponsiveness to God, to his spirit, to his word. One who is spiritually dead and unresponsive is separated from God and unable to experience and respond to his love, his mercy, and his forgiveness. Paul writes in Romans 6.23 that the wages, the payment for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The payment for sin, all sin, any sin, the biggest sin, the smallest sin is death. And not just a physical death, but a spiritual death. And spiritual death is simply and horribly, if you want to define it, a separation from God. No forgiveness, no relationship, no answered prayers, no everlasting hope, um, and no everlasting life. There's two types of people. The dead unbeliever and the alive believer. Again, it it serves us well to examine the bad news for humanity in order to fully appreciate the good news offered in Jesus Christ. We need to understand the reality of our death sentence in order to understand and experience the fullness of his love and mercy towards us in Christ. I'm just going to recount our fallenness, because I think it's important to be reminded. Sin entered the world through the first humans, Adam and Eve. And sin continues through the ages in the stony hearts of every human being. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all are dead in need of a resurrection. After creating man and woman in his image, God placed them in a garden among all the trees. And in this garden, he he identified two specific trees. He just named two, is all. The tree of life and and, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God invited Adam and Eve to eat from any and all of the trees in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he warned them if, he, if they ate that tree, that forbidden tree, it would result in death. And we see that in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. 
For our purposes today, I would encourage you to study it more on your own. It's not important for us today to understand why God forbid them to not eat from this particular tree. Rather, our focus this morning will be on the disobedience to God's directive, his command that would result in death. You know the story, Eve was tempted by the serpent and she disobeyed God and ate from the forbidden tree and Adam followed suit. We see that in chapter three, verses one through seven. At that very moment, at the moment of their first bite, they died spiritually and they were sentenced to a physical death. Additionally, their rebellion against God would impact all of their descendants. Every human being after them would be born dead spiritually and would eventually die physically. After Adam disobeyed God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God forbid Adam to eat from the tree of life lest he live forever in that state of living. It says, it says in verse uh, 24, chapter 3, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree, guard the way to the tree of life. The consequence for Adam and Eve's rebellion is the worst kind of death. Yes, they would die physically one day, but worse, they were drove away from their creator forever, and they were barred from his life-giving presence, and they would no longer enjoy his friendship. You see, in the Garden of Eden, they had enjoyed an intimate and warm relationship with him, gathering up the fruits of the earth and walking and talking with him in the cool of the day. He was their friend. He was their father. But being cut off and separated from their God, their souls died long before their bodies would die. Thankfully, thankfully, this wasn't the end of the story, even in the garden for God's, the pinnacle of God's creation. It's important to see that God had not completely abandoned Adam and Eve or their descendants. Even as he pronounced judgment, at that very moment, he executed and, and executed a harsh sentence against them. He still loved them, and he cared for them. Yes, he was banishing them from his presence. He was sending them into a, a thorny and thistle-ridden world. But he assured them that it was not the end of the story and that new life would rise again. And before he drove them out, he made a promise to them and he performed a gracious and prophetic act. I remember this as a parent when I had small kids. When they would disobey me, there was a necessary consequence that would come with that disobedience. But my hope and my prayer would be that they knew that I would never abandon them, that I always loved them. And the only reason that I disciplined, it was, disciplined them was because of my love for them. Here's the promise that God made in that garden. He promised that a descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and that serpent represented all that is evil in the world. He promised that this is not the end of the story, that even though evil has entered into the world because of your sin, 
he would come and crush the head of the prince of evil. Additionally, and I don't want you to miss this, um, Adam and Eve were experiencing the shame of their nakedness. And their loving creator wrapped them in clothes made of animal skins before they were banished from his presence. For God to love and protect Adam and Eve in that way, something had to die. Something had to die. And here we get a picture of humanity would experience new spiritual life again. It's through death. And that's a principle that goes all throughout Scripture, that the gateway to life is death. In order for humanity to experience a spiritual resurrection, something had to die. And at that moment, new life was rising. A couple of thousand years later, the prophet Daniel pointed to a physical resurrection. As a result of sin entering the world, all would die physically, and there would be a bodily resurrection for all who died. Listen to Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Those who have, been, who have died and been buried, many, actually all, shall awake. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Some will be resurrected to, to the everlasting life we were created to enjoy with our creator, and others will be re resurrected to shame and everlasting contempt. The difference? Those who will experience everlasting life will have already experienced a spiritual resurrection. The prophet Ezekiel points to this new covenant reality. Resurrection, he says, is inaugurated by the new covenant. Now we're going to start taking a look at new life rising. No spiritual resurrection, no everlasting life, only shame and everlasting contempt. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet Ezekiel points to an amazing section of scripture where where God tells him to breathe on these, uh, pr prophesy and breathe on these dry, dead bones. And it's a picture of physical resurrection. But prior to that, in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, he necessarily points to a spiritual resurrection. Listen to this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. After the fall of humanity, there's a spiritual resurrection on the horizon. God's people would become new creations and be welcomed back into his presence. And he would replace our dead, unresponsive hearts of stone with living, responsive hearts of flesh. He will put his spirit in us, his very presence in us, and he will cause us to walk in his statutes and obey all that he has commanded. This is so important that in an internal spiritual resurrection will one day turn into an external physical resurrection so that everyone 
who's had a, everyone will be made alive both inside and out. But neither of these resurrections can take place until the new covenant arrives. Jesus instituted the new covenant in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And he made its official release at the time of his death and resurrection with these words. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus confirmed that the resurrection was inaugurated by the new covenant. Jesus' death is the gateway to spiritual life. I want to go back to our passage. We did read that today in Ephesians. I want to go back to our passage in Ephesians and look at the implications of Jesus' resurrection in our lives. But if you have your Bibles, I want you to go back to chapter 1, verse 19. It's not going to be on the screen for you. Paul describes in verse 1, uh, chapter 119, he describes the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe according to the working of great might. And then he explains in verse 20 what this immeasurably great and mighty power is. He describes it as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 20, that he worked that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Then in chapter 2, our, our verse today, our passage today, he describes the implications of Jesus' resurrection for those who believe. What are the implications of Jesus' resurrection? It's the making of a Christian. It's a spiritual resurrection. Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, We were dead in our sins. We were following the course of the world. We followed the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient. We were children of wrath. That's who you were. And I, it doesn't matter if you were saved at, at 4 or at 40, that you were following the course of the world. You were dead in your sins. You were children of wrath. And here's what God didn't do. He didn't, he didn't send us a life jacket where, it, where we were drowning in, our, in the sea of sin. He dove to the bottom of the ocean and he breathed life into our dead and unresponsive bodies. Now we'll spend the rest of the time talking about our spiritual life, that we're spiritually alive, our position today, believer. That yes, we were dead in our sins. Yes, we were children of wrath. We were unresponsive to anything and everything from God. But in chapter 2, verse 4 through 7, it says, but God. If there's ever a tattoo to get, it's but God. But God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What's the difference between someone who is spiritually dead and someone who is spiritually alive is one who lives, has been raised with Christ, or is in Christ, has been raised with Christ or in Christ. And I would encourage you to circle those two in verse 5 and 6, 
raised with Christ in Christ in verse 7. I want to give you an illustration. I gave this last year about the same time of year um, that might be helpful in understanding the spiritual reality that, believer, you are in Christ. And you're not in sin. And I was, somebody uh, at our preaching collective the other day, they, they said, you, you should really contrast the difference between being in your sins and trespasses or being in Christ. And I'll do my best here. But here's the example. I want you to imagine yourself that you're at DIA on a day when there's not very long lines. And you're about to board a plane. And the plane that you're about to board is headed to sunny Mexico. For me, it would be Zihuatanejo. And you want to be there with your family, all of your loved ones. The question that I want to ask you is, what relationship do you need to have with the plane at this point? Would it be helpful to be under the plane or to submit yourself to the plane's imminent authority in the whole flying to Mexico thing? Or would it help to be inspired by the plane? Like, wow, that thing flies. Or to watch it fly off and whisper, one day, I hope to do that too. What about following that plane? You know the plane's going to Mexico, and so it stands to reason that if you just take note of the direction it goes and pursue it, then you too will end up there. Of course, the key relationship that you need to have with the plane is not to be under it or behind it or inspired by it. You need what? You need to be in it. Because by being on the plane, what happens to the plane, what? It happens to you. The question, the question, did you make it to Mexico, isn't the right question. It's part of the larger question, did the plane make it to Mexico? If the answer to the second question is yes, and if you were in the plane, then what happened to the plane also happened to you. And I, I think at the heart, the biblical idea of having been raised with Christ or being in Christ is just like that. Whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. According to the New Testament, Testament, to be in or with Christ is to say this, that by our union with him, whatever is true of him is now true of us. He died, we died. He is raised, we are raised spiritually, and one day we will taste physical resurrection. He is vindicated, we have been vindicated. He is loved by the Father and in communion with the Father, you are loved by the Father and you are in communion with the Father. And so on and so on because we're all in him. You see, you are either dead in your sin and sins and trespasses or you are alive in Christ Jesus. Resurrection hope only makes sense when, you, when we consider the life for which we were made. Of course God would put eternity into our hearts, resurrection into our hearts. We were made for that. We were made to commune and live forever, today and forever, with our creator. The first Adam rebelled. God expelled him and his wife, Eve from the garden and eating of the tree of life. They were forbidden to do that. 
That tree offered life Adam didn't yet have. So he was barred from the tree of life. And he was separated spiritually from God and he would one day die physically. But the last Adam, Jesus, the sinless man, came to lead us back to that tree in the midst of the garden. And he did it by dying on a tree. And on the third day, he rose again and he swallowed up death. And when he returns, those who were spiritually resurrected will be physically raised from the dead. Jonathan Edwards stated the matter precisely. He said this, For if Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not satisfied for the payment of our sins. Now the resurrection of God declaring his satisfaction, he thereby declared that it was enough. In other words, if God did not raise Jesus Christ from the dead, he would essentially be saying, I'm not satisfied with the atoning work of Jesus on behalf of sinners. If this were the case, we would be dead in our sins and trespasses. And if we are still dead in our sins, then we stand guilty before a holy God, unjustified and condemned, and therefore we would experience no spiritual resurrection. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it another way. If it is not a fact that Christ literally rose from the grave, then you are still guilty before God. Your punishment has not been borne. Your sins have not been dealt with. You are yet in your sins. It matters that much, he says. Without the resurrection, you have no standing at all. I'm going to read a poem from an unknown author that I thought was helpful. From the garden, Adam was expelled with Eve away from life's sweet well. For if he'd eat for if he'd eat from that tree of life, he'd live forever free from strife. But Jesus, the sinless, came to lead and show us how to plant the seed. He died upon a tree of shame to rise again and end death's game. Those who believe spiritually reborn will rise again on that great morn and feast upon the tree of life free from pain and endless strife. And I want to just close with a couple of Encouragements, And the first one is from John chapter 12. And we'll spend more time in this verse next week. Shortly before his death, Jesus explained the purpose and the outcome of his death to his disciples. He said this, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Without Jesus dying, he would not have been raised again. Without him being raised again, we would never be able to experience the fruit of his death. And that is being in relationship with him once again. The fruit that Jesus' death and resurrection would bear was our resurrection. He died and rose so that we could be raised with him. So that in the coming ages, today and forever, we could experience the fullness of God's mercy and love and the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. So believer, 
is there new life rising up in you today? If you know Jesus Christ, even though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. If you, yeah, let me, I want to remind you that the old man or woman is dead. You're alive in Christ. You're completely forgiven. There's no wrath remaining for you today or ever. And you are fully loved and accepted today. You're fully loved and accepted the same on your worst day as you are on your best. And he's with you today. You don't have to wait for a physical resurrection, that he is present with you through his spirit today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, awakening us. Thank you for um, breathing life into our dead hearts. And I thank you that, um, that we are truly and fully alive, that there is uh, nothing um, that can separate us from your love and your presence. So God, I pray that these um, indicatives, these uh, truths about who we were and who we now are, God, would compel us to um, live out of our identity, to live out of our position in Christ. God, that we would walk in confidence no matter what trials come our way, no matter what injuries, what disappointments. God, that we would stand firm knowing that you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. That even though the, uh, the outer man and woman is decaying, that this world is decaying, that we are being renewed day by day, and that you are with us. You are an ever-present help in times of trouble. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.